This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Hard Anodized Sprockets, up to 66% lighter than steel sprockets. Mugello, are we back in love with it? Are the Italian fans finally learning to live without Valentino Rossi? On this week's Paddock Pass podcast, we'll be discussing our takeaways from round six of MotoGP and looking ahead to round seven at a very different venue, the Saxon Ring. My name is Adam Wheeler. I write for On Track Off Road online magazine concept thingy. And I'm joined by a morning alarm clock's very worst enemy, David Emmett, the spunk behind MotoMatters.com's excellent insight. And the man that has yet to discover one alarm clock actually is the venerable Neil Morrison, a scribe for the masses. As ever, a big thanks to Rendell Street for helping us make the podcast possible. If you have a road bike and want to upgrade your experience handling all the longevity of key parts, then rental.com is the place to go. On this episode, we're also grateful for the backing of Husqvarna Motorcycles. The brand has the excellent Vitpilin and the Svartplin, and of course, the brilliant Norden 901. In 2023, Husqvarna Motorcycles is racing in both Moto3 and Moto2, thanks to their big alliance with the Licky Molly Intact GB team. And we've got a call interview later in the show with Moto2 recruit Darren Binder, whose brother is now the fastest ever rider in MotoGP. So keep listening for that as Darren attempts his third different class from the last three seasons. Uh, I would uh, like to have a quick go at uh, uh, pronouncing Svartpilen uh, and Vitpilen, uh, because I think that might be the way that you pronounce them. Dave, that was my first take. I mean, could you not like you know give me a bit of a chance? I uh, a completely random, but uh, the first words I ever spoke were actually Swedish. So there you have it. Uh, why? Why are you I not surprised by this news? <laughs> it's, uh... Yeah, you're going to have to tell us more, Dave. When I was six weeks old, my parents moved to Sweden, and uh, one day these two uh, young Swedish girls came and asked if they could. They'd seen that my mum had a baby, and they came and asked if they could take me out in my pram for a walk. And they were uh, wandering around, uh, you know, pointing at things the way that you do with babies, and they were saying "tita tita," which is um, Swedish for "look, look." And then one day I pointed to something and said "tita," and my mum didn't know what I was talking about. I, I'm biting my lip for so many lame jokes right now. It's unreal. <laughs> Depends what you're pointing that div. It's even worse in Dutch. All that's all I can say. Listen, without further ado, then moments of the weekend. Uh, back to you, Dave. Um, give it. Give, give us a tip-free uh, moment of uh, Mugello. <laughs> uh, I actually have two moments of Mugello because of the contrast. Uh, the, that was on Thursday uh, when we were, especially like Thursday afternoon, Thursday evening, when we were leaving the track, when we were sort of like you know walking around. Uh, the hillsides looked absolutely deserted. Um, and I was really worried that we were going to have another uh, 2022 where the track looked really, really empty. Um, and then fast forward to Sunday afternoon and the place was, I mean, to call it rammed is exaggerated. I think Franco Morbidelli said, you know, like uh, I wouldn't say it was, I wouldn't say it was packed, but it was full. It was, uh, it was Mugello. It really felt like Mugello. There was an incredible atmosphere. Um, the official numbers was nearly seventy-eight thousand. Now, that um, when I first saw that number, I thought, no, that's that's complete the sort of fabrication because they published it quite early. But then by the end of the afternoon, when they said 78,000, I thought, well, you know, it's, it's probably a, a, a slight exaggeration, but only a slight exaggeration. It was really, really, there was a real vibe. There was a real atmosphere and it was great. It was just genuinely great to see because Mugello deserves, that track deserves that kind of atmosphere. 
It was busy, wasn't it? And it was also something of a resurrection. You kind of feel with that crowd number that's something to build on. Um, and there was a genuine love and display of admiration for Pego Bagnaia, which, you know, I don't think we've really seen quite so much in, you know, at Mugello in recent years. So, you know, the Italians are taking the whole fact that they have a world champion on a Ducati to heart. So that was cool. Yeah, 100%. It was, it was just really, just really good to see. My moment of the weekend actually involves Pecco Bagnaia and his uh, rage in Q2 and qualifying in MotoGP over the last couple of years has really provided the kind of handbag moments of, um, you know, the world championship. A lot of arm waving, a lot of uh, gesticulation and, and kind of uh, road rage, I guess you could call it. Uh, Mark Marquez is now a vintage tow master and that's what happens when you're arguably the best motorcycle racer the world has seen but you have um, you know a three-legged donkey on which to uh, hone your craft so I, I just thought it was quite amusing how Magnaia was a rate that Marquez was kind of hanging around and oddly he wasn't hanging around for Pecco he was waiting for Marco Bezecchi as he told us afterwards um, but then he said he broke the lap record and, and made the quickest time took pole position anyway so um, you know if you can do that with a Honda behind you what are you worrying about mate that was uh, my moment of the Grand Prix among you know quite a few to choose from uh, Neil uh, I would have to look at the end of the Moto2 race. I mean, the Moto2 race wasn't a vintage by any stretch. Um, Pedro Costa cleared off and won by over six seconds. I think his two challengers or his, his two likeliest challengers basically like messed, well, one messed up both of their races on the first lap. Uh, Sam Lowe's and Alonso Lopez maybe had a chance to give Acosta something to think about, but then Acosta, um, Lopez took Lowe's out and then got a, a long lap penalty uh, for that, which he then messed up and had to do again. So that kind of rolled both of them on. Um, but the moment actually came in park for me afterwards, Acosta picked up like a Glovo style um, backpack um, and we were sort of wondering what is going on. And then he, in park for me, he uh, unzipped it and he had like two pizzas basically and one of them i think he gave to his team to say like look whoa i did it and then the other one he just casually handed over to one of the mark vds mechanics that was uh, basically holding tony arbolino's bike as if to go like oh mate do you want to have this and the look of disdain from the the mark vds <laughs> mechanic i think it was Gia carrillo uh was um was was worth the kind of uh, admission fee alone basically and you wonder whether i wonder how much of that was spontaneous and how much of it was as a cost of trying to just get wind uh, Arbolino and his crew up ever so slightly because um, you know he is a he is quite a sharp guy and he is um, he is very aware of the dark arts um, and if he was doing it to try and give them a bit of wind up and I thought that was that was pretty fantastic so yeah that was my weekend uh, moment of the weekend yeah it's going to be great when uh, Acosta gets into MotoGP because he is going to spice things up a little bit uh, just a quick thing about uh, Alonso Lopez uh, the it looked to me like they've actually narrowed the um uh, the, the 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 long lap penalty lane there um which is a really good way like we've we've had this in the past where it's been really difficult when people have had a long lap, uh, long lap penalty, was it's varied enormously. You know, like one place it'd be a second and a half, other place it'd be three seconds. Uh, and one way of really slowing people down is by narrowing the long lap penalty, so people really have to concentrate to make sure they don't go out the uh, outside of it. And certainly worked with well, it, it worked a little bit too well for Alonso Lopez because he completely bollocks that up. <laughs> Neil, was that also your moment of the weekend because you'd had about four or five pizzas up until that point as well? <laughs> it was indeed, yeah. And it was, uh, it was a reminder to have another one on Sunday night just to kind of uh, top the weekend off. <laughs> okay. 
Um, a reminder of the results then from Mugello, uh, as it was a, it wasn't the best race of the year, guys. I think it was the, it felt like the longest. Certainly, there was some you know action hot spots, but otherwise it was not a, a cracking jewel for for podium positions. Uh, well, I mean, for third place, you could argue that the duel between Johan Zarco and Luca Marini was something. But we had four Ducatis in the top four. It really was, um, you know, a red fest at the track where they, you know, in particular, Michele Piro knows like the back of his hand. Uh, first non-Ducati home was, um, of course, uh, oh, I've lost him, Brad Binder in fifth place. Moving up from 10th on the grid, Alessia Spargaro will come to him a little bit later in the show in six. Just in front of Jack Miller, Marco Bezecchi, a little bit surprising with the eighth. And Bezecchi, when we spoke to him after the race, not looking too happy with that one. I think he expected better. Enea Bastianini on his return to MotoGP, ninth, pretty good, you have to be said, because of his, uh, you know, his physical condition coming into the Grand Prix. Franco Morbidelli, we're going to move on to him right now because, uh, you know, it was a good performance. Finished ahead of his um, former world champion teammate, of course, Fabio Quartararo, Maverick Vinales. Maverick, what are you doing? I, I'm going to banish you forever from my fantasy team, I think. Um, <laughs> Takanakagami in 13th, the lone hero for Honda um, on another no tough weekend. Um, Fabio Di Antonio not able to, you know, um, replicate his feats from 2022 at Mugello. And Augusto Fernandez grabbed the last point ahead of Piro in 15th place. Dave, uh, let's mention, well, let's go straight to Franco Morbidelli, actually, and Yamaha because... You know, it was one of the talking points, but importantly, it was one of the last ones because um, Franco is normally one of the, the last riders we speak to anyway. His media debriefs are quite late, but uh, he seemed to have had some news over the weekend in Michello because he wasn't too optimistic or, let's say, complimentary about um, extending his future with the Yamaha in the Premier Class. No, it was also, it, it was very interesting that on Thursday, Friday, maybe even Saturday, um, Franco was quite... Um, he was sort of like that. He was a bit down. He was trying. He was clutching for straws. It felt like. And then after the race on Sunday, he was almost sort of positive, despite the fact that he, you know, I mean, he's only finished tenth. Uh, he did finish in front of his teammate, which is really, really important. Um, but speaking to Jack Appleyard on the MotoGP.com feed, um, Jack asked him, you know, a perfectly bog standard question. So, do you think this result uh, gives you improves your chances of? Staying with uh, Yamaha for next year, and uh, or, or of getting another year with Yamaha, and Morbidelli basically said, you know, who says I want another year with Yamaha? Um, so Jack says, do you want another year, uh, another year with Yamaha? And um, uh, yes, rather cryptically, uh, Franco Morbidelli replies, ask Lynn, uh, ask Lynn Jarvis, Yamaha boss. Now. That I think it was a bit of a giveaway. That there, there is something going on. We've been wondering about the future of Franco Morbidelli for a little while. Um, I, you know, where does he go? Does he stay? Uh, do, do Yamaha keep him? Who do they replace him with? It, it does sound like um, Morbidelli might be off to somewhere else, and that somewhere else is likely to be the VR46 team because we know that Valentino Rossi has been uh, trying very hard to keep Morbidelli in MotoGP. Uh, of course, there's only two seats in the MotoGP team in the, in the VR46 team, and uh, Luca Marini 
deservedly uh, has one of them. And Marco Bezzecco even more deservedly has the other. But, you know, Bezzecchi is going to want more factory support. So the logical thing to do would be to move him up to uh, the Pramac squad and um, kick Joan Zarco out. Because, you know, like Zarco's been a fantastic rider, uh, but he's at his ceiling. This is the best that Joan Zarco is going to do. Um, but it really well, he's felt... still chasing that elusive win, Dave. Uh, well, yeah, but it's, I mean that's that's the point. Like he he should have had a win. Marco Bezzecchi has already won races. Um, he deserves. Uh, you would have to say if you have to choose between Bezzecchi and Zarco, it's a no-brainer. It's an absolute no-brainer. As good as Zarco is, you know, Zarco's been fantastic. It's also been interesting looking at Zarco's bike throughout the, the first part of this year. Last year, I would go down into the pits and there'd always be something new on Zarco's bike. They'd be playing around because Zarco is basically uh, uh, playing the the sort of like the racing test uh, uh, test rider role. Um, and he's not been doing that this year. Now, maybe Ducati don't have so much to test, but also maybe it's a different role. Could there also be another reason why Franco was slightly happier on Sunday, Dave? And that was after your bonding, your mutual bonding um, <laughs> earlier on in the, in the debriefs. Before you tell that story, though, Neil, uh, let's say, I mean, Franco Morbidelli, he rode brilliantly on a two-year-old Yamaha, got himself up to third in the World Championship and, you know, Second. former second so beg your pardon um former motor 2 world champion as well but it's safe to say that the tenure at yamaha is looking like it's you know, it looked like both parties should go their separate ways for 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 both you would say i mean who who would we say could step into that shoe into those shoes then at yamaha yeah it's a difficult one um i mean from the start of the year yamaha seemed to have lots of options didn't they um it seemed that they had uh, the likes of jorge martin on their radar Maybe even Marco Bezzecchi was on their radar. Uh, Alonso Lopez was spoken about as a potential um, recruit that they could uh, they could get to step up. Um, but um, you know, I think Jorge Martin was basically saying, "I want the factory seat, but I want it in 2025," which indicated to me that he's going to stay put in Pramac um, next year. Um, as Dave mentioned, there is talk that you know Ducati really want to keep a hold of Bezzecchi, but um, to do so, they probably need to offer him. A brand, you know, an up-to-date bike, which would mean he could go up to go up to Pramac, um, and then you know, Morbidelli could could perhaps slot into the VR46 team, um, and yeah, that sort of leaves Yamaha a little bit thin on on options. I mean, they could look at Moto2, obviously. Um, you can't think of any other riders in MotoGP that jump from the page that you know they 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 would have to sign. You know, maybe two years ago. Ralph Fernandez would have been one of those names, but I don't think he looks quite as attractive now. Um, do you go for Pedro Acosta? Um, you know, it's it's not sure whether KTM can offer him a spot for 2024. Um, there's, it's obviously a bit of a, um, a sort of left field choice, but we know that Dorno is so keen for um, a Brit in MotoGP. Um, you know, could Jake Dixon be on the radar? Um you know, has he done enough in Moto2 to deserve a seat in a factory Yamaha team? I'm not sure he has, but, um, you know, the idea of a Brit moving up to MotoGP seems like it makes sense from a kind of, um, you know, a publicity point of view and um, keeping one of uh, one of the, the TV companies that pays you a very high sum every year um, on side and happy. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really tough to say. Um, you know, Yamaha don't seem to have... Uh, you know, compared to the start of the year where you thought, well, maybe it could be Toprak or Martin or Bezeki. Now you're looking at it and thinking, well, it's none of those guys, probably. So, um, yeah, where, where, where do they go from there? 
Yeah, I spoke to, or well, I was chatting to Nikki Kovac earlier this uh, earlier today, and she'd spoken to Albert Valera, who is Jorge Martin's manager, and uh, he confirmed that basically uh, Martin has a two-year contract with Ducati with an option for himself um, uh, on his side to leave uh, leave after a year if he's offered a factory ride, you know, a ride in a factory team. Um, but Ducati then also have an option that, say, Yamaha are offering a factory t- uh, a, a seat in the factory team. Uh, then Ducati can um, offer him a seat in the factory team, and then he would be he would be forced to stay with Ducati. But I mean, look, I'm saying forced. I'm sure it would be absolutely terrible for Jorge Martin to be in the factory Ducati team. But um, uh, yeah, I think th- there does seem to be. I mean, like Yamaha do seem to be struggling to find someone to put on the bike, and there is getting more and more more pressure I think to have a British rider especially with uh, BT Sport are being taken over or they're being sort of merged into Discovery um, uh, into this new uh, company TNT uh, they seem to be making a focus uh, you know putting more effort into their MotoGP co- um, coverage so it, it would put more and more pressure onto it Fabio is very or uh, Jake is very very good friends with Fabio Quattararo that would make sense as well it would be a, it'd be a good uh, team um whether uh, you know as you say neil has he done enough to to deserve it i don't know but it would certainly be a perfectly good stop gap measure i can't see uh, pedro acosta wanting to uh take a yamaha and this is the problem which both yamaha and honda have is like who actually wants to ride their bikes you know because we saw that uh, alex rins managed to break his tib fib um, uh, during practice or was it the sprint race the sprint race i think wasn't it and um uh, juan mir uh, uh, no it was, it was during the race um, uh, juan mir broke his um uh, well, he, he he injured his right hand during the sprint race in a crash. Uh, Mar- Marquez crashed out of the race. It, it's just not a particularly appealing prospect. I'd have to say, I mean, in answer to your question, Neil, no, Jake Dixon so far hasn't done anything to warrant that ride. I mean, if he does get it, it will be a political move, as we all know. Um, it will be a passport thing, which ironically is uh, what a lot of British riders were complaining about in the past. But then I think, you know, we're talking short term. I mean, you don't want to be, as you say, Dave, on an RCV or an M1 for 2024 or maybe even 25. But, you know, I think if you're going to invest in a rider like Tony Arbolino or Pedro Acosta, then Yamaha will give that sort of rider, that sort of talent, a three-year, you know, a scope of a, a couple of years, like they did with Jorge Lorenzo. I mean, they signed him very early on when he was still racing 250cc GPs. I mean, he wasn't—he was a project they're willing to invest in. I think they could say to Acosta, "Come up to MotoGP next year. You know, don't worry about any kind of results. Fabio's going to do the heavy lifting for us. He's our championship bet. You know, we're going to be working in the background. We're going to be, you know, improving the M1. By the time that you've learned and come up to speed in this Premier Class, then you know we're going to have something that will will suit you. Oh, and by the way, here's a you know a contract of a couple of million um, just to keep you sweet. So I, I think you know there is some kind of mid to long-term options there for Yamaha that could be the best route but do you I mean if you're a Pedro Acosta do you trust Yamaha I mean there would be a time when a bad season for Yamaha was a bad season and they would be able to come back from that the the following season but both the Japanese factories find themselves in such a rut currently and so far away from Ducati and even from you would say KTM and and to a lesser extent Aprilia um, that I think as a Moto2 rider yes maybe they're able to pay you a a serious amount of wedge but um, 
I mean, if your if your goal is to be fighting at the front of MotoGP, then uh, I really don't know that you you go down that avenue. The other thing is like the comparison with Jorge Lorenzo. Um, when uh, Lorenzo signed for Yamaha, th- that Yamaha was a pretty good bike. You know, it was uh, extremely successful. It had Valentino Rossi on it, the, uh, who was winning, uh, winning a lot on it. Colin Edwards do- was doing well on the bike. Um, you know, there was just no question that 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 it, that it wasn't a competitive machine. And this this M1 is quite clearly not competitive. Well, I mean, but Acosta's not going anywhere. I mean, he may have a rush to get to MotoGP, but if he's still going to be under 20 years old when he's making a, his first start in the Premier Class or under 21, then, you know, that's still a long old career, the better part of a decade at the top. And also, if the machine isn't quite up to spec, I don't think he has anything really to lose because he could still make results. He can still learn without having a, a motorcycle where you think, right, okay, you know, maybe the case where Enea Bestini is in at the moment where he has a championship winning motorcycle and a championship winning team. I mean, this guy is under pressure because that's arguably the seat everybody wants because Bagnaia, as we know, is very much the golden child. Yeah, and just to just about Yamaha there. I mean, Banyaya's race time on on Sunday was pretty quick. He was, uh, I think, two seconds quicker than last year's race time. However, he was half a second slower than Fabio's race winning time from two thousand and twenty one. Um, and Fabio was on Sunday seventeen, nearly eighteen seconds off Banyaya. So he was eighteen seconds slower than he was two years ago at Mugello, which um, shows that things are not going well this year. And yeah, what has Acosta got to lose signing for a factory team? Well, for a start, a whole bunch of bonuses. Uh, if you jump onto a um, if you jump onto a competitive machine and you do well straight away, uh, there's a chance that you're going to earn a lot of money in bonuses from your sponsors and from other people um, uh, and that sort of thing. You're also making yourself a very attractive prospect for the future, for the next couple of years in terms of in terms of sponsorship. Uh, but if you sort of you know drift around in the mid pack on a Yamaha for, for 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 two or three years then you know your helmet sponsor your leather sponsor your all the other personal sponsors are not going to be paying you quite so much because they'll be uh, pouring money into the people at the front yeah and there's always a spanish rider coming through you know like in two crap years in in model gp for acosta suddenly sergio garcia who might in two years be the you know the guy that everyone in MotoGP is trying to sign, or Danny Holgado, who's having a fantastic year in Moto3. Maybe he's the guy Jose that everyone... Rueda. Yeah, or Jose Rueda, or Ethan Guevara, if he gets his act together. You know what I mean? Like It's not like he is going to be the golden child no matter what. You know, It's like there's a lot to choose from if you're, uh, if you're Spanish. Ethan Guevara is not going to get his act together. Yeah, but the thing is, Pedro Acosta, I know arguably could win two world titles in three years. I still think he's a bit of a generational talent, even though it looks like, as usual, Spain are inundated with, you know, many options when it comes to riders. I think Acosta must be right at the top, Dave. I mean, you're saying that, the, uh, the, you know, this kind of statement by Morbidelli is kicking off silly season. I still think um, Acosta is pretty much the uh, the fattest bird in the paddock that people are, you know, chasing around at the moment. 
I well, let me just refer you to the sponsor of this podcast, uh, Husqvarna, uh, and uh, KTM could quite easily put two more bikes on the on the grid with a lovely Husqvarna sticker on on it. It'd be a factory bike. It'd be factory um, uh, be factory backed, be factory spec. Uh, Acosta would get all of the factory kit. Uh, and um, yeah, basically th- th- that would be a perfect place for him to land. The bike is really good. We've seen that the bike is good. Um, it would be competitive. He would be, a, you know, he'd have the factory cachet. He'd have the factory salary. Um, I, I think, and Donna would be back up to twenty four uh, to twenty four bikes. So that makes sense to me. But I haven't spoken to Mister Pira recently, so I have no idea whether you know how full his his pockets are at the moment. Uh, Dave, we need the Pira Mobility Group accounting department to pay us for this podcast first before they start laying out <laughs> many more millions for a MotoGP project. So don't shout too loudly. Neil, your talking point from Mugello was, as we said, four Ducatis in the top four. Uh, it was just like a red steamroller, wasn't it? But also, you know, Peko Bagnaya, what a fantastic weekend. Uh, picture perfect. I've got to be better than he looked in Portimao at the beginning of the season. Yeah, exactly. It was uh, it was picture perfect. I mean, it wasn't supposed to be this easy. I don't think for for Peko. You know, he had uh, cracked. Uh, he had a small fracture in his right ankle. He showed up to Mugello with a um, with a crutch. wasn't walking freely at all. But then when he got on the bike, he said everything was. Everything felt better than it did when he was just walking. Um, and yeah, you just had to look at his results. He was fastest on Friday. Ball position. Uh, won the sprint comfortably only by three tenths of a second but it definitely seemed like a bigger gap he just was managing that really well and then on Sunday as well it just uh, yeah you look at the gaps and okay less than two seconds covered the podium but I mean uh, for me there was rarely any sense of jeopardy um, in that uh, in that contest you know Beko I think from the the third or fourth corner you just you just knew that he was going to he was going to win Um, yeah and Ducati were so far ahead of the rest. I mean, you mentioned that there was four guys in the top five. Had Alex Marquez not crashed, thought it would have been five. Ducati's at the top. Had Marco Bozzecchi not had some weird, mysterious issue with the front end off his bike. Uh, there's no doubt. Right, yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt he would have been up there as well, you know, so it could have been a, a total Ducati whitewash in, in the top six. Ended up just them in the top four. And, um, you know, it was interesting to hear some of the other guys on, on, on other bikes um, talking about what they observed when they were following the Ducatis and just how easy it seemed for them, you know, at Mugello. Um, Alessio Spargro was pretty good on it. He said, if you watch Peko's pole position lap, there's not any moment where it seems that the bike is moving around, where he's out of shape, where it looks like he's having to be super aggressive. The bike stability was just absolutely fantastic um and obviously the engine is 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 a massive massive benefit it wasn't the fastest bike in a straight line over the weekend but just the the engine is so strong coming out of the corners on the straight as well um it was uh, it was a pretty unbeatable package and you know this year we've had ktm in the mix we've had aprilia in the mix um in kota we had honda in the mix um but we haven't really seen ducati sort of stamp their authority on on a, on a race weekend quite like this so far this year. Two points. I was quite surprised by Luca Marini. I mean, on Thursday, he was telling us, you know, the repercussions of the Le Mans crash. I mean, both of his thumbs had been hyperextended. I mean, that's kind of an injury you don't really tend to think about that much because when a rider crashes a motorcycle, they let go of it. Um, but, you know, Marini was really caught under that bars there from the impact and was struggling. 
And so I thought, you know, coming close to sort of taking that podium finish, um, full props to him. And secondly, do we was was there a part of when we were watching this race? Because Neil, you mentioned um, how stable and strong Bagnaya has been looking, but he was also looking very formidable at Cotta and then dropped it inexplicably. Uh, I had a lot of people wondering why, you know, what are the causes behind this? Um, was there a fear that he could do the same? Or do we think that, you know, Bagnaya's maybe jumped over this sort of mental or set up obstacle that, you know, caused some concerning errors in the first part of the season? I mean, I thought that Pecco just looked really, really confident. He just, he looked really calm, you know, didn't seem at all concerned all weekend. So no, I don't, I don't think there was ever a moment. I mean, it was, the other thing is like he was being kept sharp by Jorge Martin. So he was having to concentrate because Jorge Martin kept on sort of like inching back to, to, to get the gap to about half a second. And then Banyaya would just find that little bit extra. He'd pull out another one or two tenths, take it up to seven, eight tenths. Um, so it was, um, and it wasn't really until right at the end that he actually pulled away. So I think uh, it, it looked to me like Banyaya was focusing and concentrating on just managing the gap and controlling the race. And that's a really good way to make sure to keep your focus, to maintain your your your, your attention, to stop yourself from making mistakes. I think Ducati also showed that they're still very much the, the strongest motorcycle on the, the Grand Prix grid, you know, despite the progress of Aprilia and also um, KTM. But uh, yeah, like we said, uh, Bagnaya, you know, making an apt demonstration that he is the reigning world champion and, and going from strength to strength. So it was a little worrying on one side. Yeah, I mean, also you asked him, I thought you asked him a really good question about, you know, you asked uh, Luca Marini a really good question, you know, where are you making the difference? Um, and Marini explained it, or where is Bagnaia making the difference? And Marini explained it really well that he's, uh, Bagnaia is able to hang off the bike, especially around left corners in a particular way, which allows him to, to, to lift the bike up a little bit more and get onto a fatter part of the tyre while putting the um, the center of gravity of the entire package bike and rider in such a position that uh, you know he can still carry the same sort of corner speed uh, so basically he can carry you know a bit more corner speed and accelerate earlier because he's hanging off of the because because of the way he's hanging off the bike and Marini said he couldn't do that because he's too tall and gangly and uh, especially in the chicanes when he tries to ride like Banyaya, then it just takes him physically too long to climb up on top of the bike and then over the bike over to the other side to get the thing to change direction. Whereas Banyaya being sort of shorter um, allows him to actually sort of, you know, move around quickly. Yeah, and I remember in 2019 when Petrucci won the, the race there, um, I think it was Davitioso was saying it was the, the final turn where he was making all the difference as well. So it seems that that is the, the key part of the track at Mugello because obviously you can carry, uh, if you can nail that final turn, you can set yourself up for the, the long straight and down into San Donato. Um, you know, Giacani, I think, have only lost one race at Mugello since 2017, um, which was Quattro Arrow's win in 2021. Um, so, you know, this is their track. Um, but yeah, I was still surprised just by the kind of extent of their extent of their dominance. I was expecting coming into the weekend that there could be a few things that could maybe go wrong, or you know maybe one or two of the other manufacturers. I thought Aprilia, for example, were, were going to be really strong, but um, that just never quite materialised. Guys, my kind of headline from the weekend was uh, KTM's new top speed record. Uh, I think we saw it. It was possible on Saturday. I think in P1. Binder cracked 360 along the main straight. 
Uh, of course, the weather changed a little bit on, you know, later in the afternoon and throughout Saturday. But yeah, it was it was evident early on that, you know, the 1.1 kilometers straight there in Mugello, where the two previous records set by Jorge Martin and Brad Binder, I actually asked both of those riders about this in the press conference. And um, you have to love how matter-of-fact MotoGP riders are about speed. I mean, it's uh, it's an incredible amount. I think 366.1 is something like 227 miles an hour. I mean, that is not slow. And, you know, it's also perilous. As uh, Alex Marquez pointed out to us in the race, you know, his uh, faux par when he almost took out his brother, uh, and I can't remember who was alongside him now, but, um, you know, he explained that his braking, his, his marker, everything was the same as he had done every lap, but because he'd been sucked into sort of the vortex created by the you know the the trails and the aerodynamics of the motorcycles that's the reason why he almost took out riders and ran straight on at turn one so um you know they're hitting some serious speed there as we said in the note show along the main straight across the rise and into San Donato it's one of the unforgettable places to watch MotoGP on an annual basis from any track on the calendar and um I you know Binder was talking to us on Saturday uh, he believed that 370 is soon going to be possible. He said he actually had a few Ks in the pocket. I, I can't remember if it was Binder or actually Jack Miru said they were not actually hitting the limiter. I think it was Binder on Sunday, actually, when there was a slight headwind and the guys didn't reach the same kind of speed levels. But he said that, you know, the, he wasn't hitting the limiter on the bike. So there's scary potential there. I mean, is um, Dave, for you, is, is 370 too much? I mean, especially around a track like Mugello, which... You know, we were talking about the, some of the reservations or limitations of this place in, in our preview show. Yeah, I mean, like 370 is, um, I mean, it, is it too much? The, the problem is not the, the, the top speed. The problem, the, the problem is the stopping. Um, the, the problem is the runoff. You know, you, you're hitting 370 through there and then you've got to get the bike stopped uh, back down to, I think, about 90 k's an hour to get through San Donato. Um this is one of the big problem that MotoGP has is that uh, we are running out of room. If you think about, I think at the 500 era, the uh, they were just starting to crack 300, 300 kilometers an hour through uh, at Mugello. And if you think of like the difference, you know, 66 kilometers an hour, which is uh, what, um, 30, 30, 40, mi 40 miles an hour, I think, if I remember correctly. Uh, if I could do my uh, into those appalling imperial units correctly, um, <laughs> uh, the, the, the that's just it's basically it's twenty percent. It's over twenty percent faster. We've we've seen a speed a top speed increase in, in over twenty percent faster, and we've got heavier bikes uh, going faster. Uh, sure, they're more powerful. The, the, the brakes are much more powerful, um, but you're having. To, that shortens the braking, that sort of effectively shortens the braking distance because you're having to scrub off so much speed in such a, um, uh, in such a short distance. So, uh, yeah, and if something goes wrong, um, then the bike travels for a very, very long time. Um, the safety issues around circuits is always in runoff areas. You know, there, there are other things which which you can fix, which you can deal with, uh, but not having a, enough runoff is going to be an issue. And the, if we keep going faster, uh, then we're going to run out of traction. And the, the, I mean, there's no point in asking the engineers at the factories about this because, you know, their job, they think, is to go faster. Whereas... Um, in reality, the secret to racing is to go faster than everyone uh, is to go faster than everyone else. The like the old joke about you know how do you avoid being eaten by a bear? Um, you run faster than the person that you're with. Uh, that you you have to go faster than 
your competitors, competitors rather than just being outright faster. Um, but these bikes keep on going faster and faster and faster. And, and at some point, we are going to be, you know, doing a 22 season, uh, um, a 22 race season at Qatar because that's the only place with sufficient runoff. That's a little bit my approach to swimming in the sea, Dave. Is there somebody out further than you? They'll be the first one eaten by the shark. Exactly. Exactly. Just make sure you're between somebody else on the beach and you'll be all right. But, uh, you know, at Speed at Mugello is an annual subject, isn't it? It's creeping up every year. I know technicians are worried about it, but it's something that people don't really want to kick off about too much. It's just like an accepted thing. It's the same reason why the riders might be aghast at having to do a sprint, but then there's not a great deal of complaints about it. It's a certain degree of acceptance or tolerance. So I, I just wonder how far it's going to go. Um, you know, there, there, I think there was a tension across the Grand Prix this weekend, particularly in Moto3, as we know, when you have up to 10 bikes all going into sort of, you know, turn one, I think Moto3 reached fantastic speeds. Moto2 got up to more than 300 kilometers, you know, an hour as well. Um, it's, it's something to marvel at, but also be, I think, extremely concerned about moving forwards. But um, anyway, let's 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 crack on because we've got lots on the show today. Um, our winners from the weekend. Uh, Neil, you first. Uh, my winner from the weekend is uh, the guy that finished in third. We haven't really spoken too much about him, Johan Zarco, um, who had a who had a really good race. He had a really good weekend, actually. Um, you know, was uh, was up there in the mix in the sprint on uh, Saturday. Um, and, uh, you know, has had a, a, another solid start to the season. Um, you know, was on the podium in Argentina, um, on the podium in France, of course, at his home race and just missed out in the sprint podium here at Mugello, but then fought through, um, on the, uh, on the Sunday. Um, I think he was down as low as 10th on the first lap and, uh, there was a nice, um, Summary of his race by uh, Dennis Noyes, friend of the show, of course. Uh, shout out to Dennis if he's listening. Um, where I think he was saying from lap five onwards, he was uh, basically, if you if you took away the first five laps, he was the fastest guy in the race and was actually making up time on, on Banyaya. Now, Pekka was obviously just, I think, controlling the lead at the front. Um, you got the impression that he had certainly something more to give. But, you know, Zarko was, uh, was, was, was excellent. And, um, you know, another... Another lap or two, and maybe he could have uh, he could have got his teammate Jorge Martin. Um, the only thing that I would say, the only caveat, is that this is very typical Zarco behaviour. You know, he's he's going to be great at the at the Saxon Ring. I'm pretty sure he was on the podium there last year. Maybe he'll be in the hunt for the podium again this year. Um, he'll probably get a decent top five, top six at Nassen. And then we're going to have to really assess his uh, his performance from the second part of the year because the last couple of years, he's been great in the first half and then just gone to gone to pot. So um, I thought he had a great weekend, but this is very much in the kind of uh, Johan Zarco manner and way of doing things. Um, I think the proof of the pudding, whether this is a kind of new rider um, will come later on in the season. Yeah, he's going to get a podium at uh, a podium at Mugello, podium at Saxon Ring, podium at Aston, and then get sacked during the summer because they have to make way for Marco Bezzecchi. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, fantastic rider. It's just that you know he's reached his ceiling. The ruthlessness of it, Dave. It's um, you're unforgiving. It's not me, mate. It's not me. I'm not paying their salaries. It's uh, <laughs> it's just the way it is. You know, it's about it, it, in the end, it comes down to winning next year. Uh, my winner from the weekend was Alessia Spargaro, um, a rider who I, I think always confuses us because he's so transparent, he's so dramatic, he's so <laughs> articulate. You know, he can sort of rift on a number of subjects across sort of four days at a MotoGP weekend and it really does sort of send your head into a warp. 
Um, you know, Spargaro was mentioning things like, you know, whether he'll actually be racing next year. Then he was a little coy on, you know, um, a mystery bicycle accident, um, you know, which affected him badly on Friday. He had to have blood drained from his heel um, after essentially crashing while doing a lap um, of pedal power around Mugello uh, while looking at his phone. Um, he said it was incredibly dumb. He said he's a, he apologized to the Aprilia team 100 times. Um, it looked at one point like he wasn't going to race. Um, P1, you know, uh, on Friday was, was a real scene. I mean, he was in tears, uh, crashed, had to be helped off the bike, but then, you know, got it all together, had some treatment and finished sixth in the race. So I think... Um, you know, there was, you could look at it and say over-exaggeration, but I think, you know, um, Alester showed again that he's actually pretty, pretty a hard guy, you know. Um, he can talk a good game, but he can actually make a decent game. So he's my winner. Um, yours, yours, Dave? Uh, my winner of the weekend is the winner of the weekend, uh, which is Pekka Banyaya, because he literally uh, won everything. He set pole. Um, he set pole out of sheer spite for Mark Marquez. Uh, became the first person to lap in the in under one forty five. Um, he there won the sprint race. He won the main race. He uh, uh, led every single lap of both races. It's just he's just an astonishing. It was just an astonishingly um, settled, controlled, managed weekend. It was utterly, utterly, it was quietly dominant. It was very much a Pekka Banyaya sort of a weekend, you know, like not, not showy, not going off and winning by 10, uh, 10 seconds, just getting the job done, but being completely invincible, uh, uh along the way. So it, it was just, it was very, very impressive, especially sort of still hobbling a little bit with his, um, uh, with his heel as, um, Wilco Zielenberg told us on the RNF Unlock show this weekend that you know like but injuries to your lower body are far less of a worry than than injuries to your upper body but still it was discomfort he couldn't break properly there was uh, all sorts of um, there's all sorts of issues uh, and he still sort of carried this off so yeah to me this was Banyaya's weekend and of course uh, wherever there's a Manchester City there's also a Liverpool football club so on to our losers of the weekend Sorry, Neil, I added that just to see your little smile. Uh, for me first, my loser was anybody who had ridden a Suzuki last year. Um, you know, bitterly disappointing for the LCR team with um, Alexis Rin's uh, double leg break. I mean, that's looking like, uh, of course, maybe not a season-ending injury because we still got so far to go, but it's it's incredibly tough um, for the Catalan and it looks like getting back for Silverstone after the summer break will be a real mission. And Juan Mir is not going to be riding in Germany, as we found out after his um, injury to his right hand. But then, Dave, um, would he really want to come back and ride the Honda anyway, even if he was somewhere near, um, you know, kind of full fitness? He's contractually obliged to for the next year and a half. He'll take any time off he can. <laughs> You're full of positivity for the riders on this show today, aren't you? Sorry, Neil. Yeah, and, and per Rins, I mean, like, um, it, it was all looking so positive for him on Friday. He was inside the top three, I think, at the end of P2. Um, he was standing on his uh, foot pegs, Kevin Schwantz style, and beating his chest as he came in to the pit lane after that uh, after that late lap that he that he did to, to secure a place automatically in Q2. And, you know, Marquez on Friday was saying, I think, you know, this is one of five or six tracks that we have during the year where it really suits Alex Rins' riding style. He's always gone fast here. And you you genuinely thought that maybe a decent result could be on for him. But um, sadly, it uh, it unraveled. And, yeah, he's now looking at uh, a pretty uh, pretty long recovery period. So, um, yeah, just hope that... Uh, 
hope that he's doing okay and that um, we'll see him back again. You know, maybe Silverstone could be too early. Maybe start of September might be more realistic. I'm not sure. It's a shame because I think Silverstone was another one of those tracks where Rins is really, really good. And it, it's also a shame because, like, Alex Rins has been really good. He's been, uh, of the two Suzuki riders who made the, who've made the step to Honda, he's just been really good. He's probably been the best rider to adapt to that bike in a long time, since Cal Crutchlow, really, because he's, um, it, he hasn't complained. He knows what he's got. He knows the bike is difficult. He's just got on with it and tried to make the best of it. And he's been, I'm, I'm genuinely impressed by Rins. On the uh, on the LCR Honda, uh, Dave, keep talking. Who was your bottom feeder from Magello? Uh, my bottom feeder from the uh, from Magello was the 2021 uh, MotoGP World Champion Fabio Quartararo. Uh, firstly, because he got beaten by his teammate, uh, he put that down to the wrong tire choice. You know, going with the medium instead of the soft. Um, he just didn't have the feeling with the uh, uh, with the medium. Um, it, it was just a miserable week, and he just looked not even despondent, just resigned. Um, he he know, knew that this was all there was uh, uh, to it. The bike is too... They've got more power uh, in the Yamaha M1, but that Yamaha has come at a cost of the... Yamaha's strong point, which is dried a bit, which is rideability, you know, like drivability, having a, a smooth power delivery. As soon as they open the throttle, the bike starts starts wanting to move around, and that's making it very, very difficult to control. And it's very un Yamaha like, really. So this, this to me, that has got to be a concern for Quattararo. And we've got, you know, Saxon Ring coming up where he's been uh, pretty decent uh, in recent years. We've got Assen, which is obviously a, a, a very strong Yamaha track and a very strong track for, for Quattararo. So, uh, yeah, it's it's things are not looking good. Yeah, if it doesn't go well in these next two weeks, then I think we're, we're going to have to ride off the season completely. Um, and also, this was a weekend where we heard that he was breaking up with his uh, longtime uh, personal manager, Eric Mahi, um, um, who he's been with since 2016, I think. So um, again, I guess in situations like this, you're, you're probably left looking at how am I in this situation? And maybe fingers start getting pointed at uh, why the situation is just like this. Um, but yeah, certainly uh, Mahi's uh, departure from quarter hours corner indicates that, you know, things are, are, are just as bad behind the scenes as uh, are not going on well behind the scenes, uh, just like they are on track. Who did you select as your abject performer, Neil? Well, it sounds harsh because this guy actually had a great weekend, finished second in Moto Three. But Dennis Onju was my was my loser just because he was the absolute pick of the Moto Three riders all weekend. He scored pole position by a half a second. He uh, he was so so fast in the third sector of the track through the Arabiata one and two corners. He had such a an advantage there, and you could see he made some fantastic moves on his competitors during the race um i thought he had done pretty much everything he could to to win the race um you know he, he passed danny holgado with a great move at arabiata two on the last lap he pulled out five six bike lengths in the corners after that to lead on to the main straight and uh, still dennis managed not to win the race by uh five hundredths of a second and you just you get the impression I certainly have the impression now that he might be one of those guys that's just doomed not to win a race in Moto3 just because, yeah, he's not got the frame, um, as in like his personal frame. Uh, he's just a bit too big. He loses time. On acceleration, he loses time, top speed. And, um, you know, even at places where 
he can make the difference through the corners. He's still uh, got quite a sizable handicap. So um, I just really felt sorry for Dennis, to be honest, at the end of that. Uh, Dennis, on to the Joan Zarco of Moto3. <laughs> oh, God. Poor Dennis. Perish a thought. Listen, guys, we're coming to a section of the show that I usually love and, you know, makes me want to glow and feel all superior. But um, Fantasy Roundup uh, for, you know, people who joined us in the league, they're now almost 500 of you, so full props. We must get our asses into gear and get some prizes sorted for 2023. You have a winner from last year even who still hasn't got a gift pack. So we're, we're working on it. Trust me, we'll try and confirm what we can give you as a prize for being far more knowledgeable than us. Um, it was the worst weekend ever for me, guys, and Michelle. I picked the Marquez brothers. I mean, they both went straight into the gravel. Um, I had Maverick Vinales as a gold rider and Brad Binder as well. So thank God Brad managed to save some paltry points for me. I think I lost something ridiculous, like a 13,000 places in the general MotoGP league. I mean, that is some relegation. I support Queen's Park Rangers Football Club, and, you know, I don't think even they plummeted down the table as quick as I did. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think I'm now, I had a look earlier on, and I'm 229th in our own Paddock Pass podcast 2023 league. So, um, yeah, uh, is there any other comments? I mean, I, I'm ready to eat some humble pie or be chided by both of you. Never trust Maverick Vinales for a fantasy team. Never. Exactly. I mean, like, I have Maverick Vinales, but then I also had Alex Rins, um, which seemed like a really good choice on Friday, but it was just deeply unfortunate on Saturday. You know, like I... Uh, I'm, I'm very sorry if me selecting him had anything to do with his misfortune because that was very cruel indeed. Uh, but uh, don't worry, you're, you're still about 100 places ahead of me, uh, Ad. And about 150 behind me. I've gone from <laughs> outside 200, the top 200, to 65th in two races. So uh, have, some, have some of that. Blimey. Goodness. What are we doing, Dave? Anyway, listen, we're going to suspend our fantasy for a moment and go for a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we'll talk about Saxon Ring right after our chat with Darren Binder, who, Neil, is in a slightly unique position for 2023. He is, yeah. Um, he's the only rider in Model 2 this year to um, step down into the class from the Model GP. Um, so he is a rookie, um, but uh, yes, he's kind of had a slightly different route to the rest of the riders. Um, and he's been pretty unlucky so far this year. Um, he was really coming into his own just before he broke two bones in his hand uh, at Austin. He just uh, finished in the top six in his first wet weather ride on the Moto2 bike in Argentina. That was seriously impressive. And he was kind of giving the indication that he was uh, already a, a sort of top six, top eight guy in the class. Um, but then that, that injury has obviously derailed his, his season somewhat. He was unlucky again on Sunday, taken out at the first corner by, I think it was Jeremy Alcoba. Um, so, oh no, sorry, it was Fermin Aldeguer. Um, so yeah, Darren has uh, not really had luck on his side recently, but um, you do feel that once he gets his sort of Physical level back, he'll be, uh, he will be a bit of a force in Model 2, I think, in the second half of the year. Renthal Street, Chain, and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Darren, great to talk to you. Great that you're back in the paddock. Give us an update on the injury. How's the hand? Yeah, the hand's good. Uh, it's coming up to eight weeks now since uh, since the accident in america uh yeah you know i got it fixed immediately after on the tuesday after the race in uh in austin and uh i was adamant i was coming back already for jerez you know i flew out there and i thought it was all good and when i got to the medical check the guy told me to squeeze his hand and i squeezed it and they looked at me like i was crazy and i felt like i was squeezing it super tight and uh 
it turned out I just had zero power in my hand and uh, it took longer to come back than what I expected and unfortunately I made the call to to skip Lamar because I still felt that I wasn't going to be competitive and uh, luckily we had that three-week break afterwards so it gave me some more time to to get it working properly again and uh, yeah I feel like I'm I'm back to where I should be and uh, ready to to get out there tomorrow. So Hareth was the best time to play you at golf then? That would have been uh, an easy match. <laughs> 100%. I think uh, I would have lost a few clubs. Uh, Darren, I mean, there's, there's obvious questions to ask you. Uh, how are you finding the whole culture shift this year? I mean, MotoGP was a real baptism of fire. I mean, <laughs> you were incredibly positive all the way through last year. I mean, there were some fantastic ups and there were some, some downs and some tough <laughs> learning experiences. But even just the day-to-day work, I mean, media commitments, sponsor commitments, how are you finding that sort of adjustment being in Moto2? Yeah, I find uh, it's, uh, it's a lot more chilled in Moto2, uh, both on track and off track. Uh, yeah, you know, obviously for me, it was a major, a major step from Moto3 to MotoGP. And I feel like coming down to Moto2, it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's in the middle. I feel like it's just below the middle, you know, it's definitely more relaxed. And uh, to be honest, you know, obviously, you know what comes with the sports and that in MotoGP and it's all part of it. But uh, yeah, it's definitely a little bit more enjoyable in Moto2. It's a little bit more relaxed, more my style. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's been super cool. Um, the Moto2 bike, uh, I've really been enjoying it. I mean, I felt like I, I picked up quite quickly on it. And uh, maybe that's obviously the year of experience in MotoGP, but I felt like I adapted to the Moto2 fairly quickly. And, uh, you know, it was really nice to be competitive again. Uh, last year was a struggle, some ups and a lot of downs. But, uh, yeah, it, it felt really nice to be, to be back and be a bit more competitive. And uh, I n- know that there's a lot more in the tank, you know, like I'm still finding my feet in Moto2. And uh, it's really cool to know that I can, I've got everything I need to be up in the front for sure. Uh, the Licky Molly intact team, you know, you'd said have been chasing you for a while, for a couple <laughs> of years. They finally got you for this year. Uh, talk about the differences again from a satellite MotoGP team to what seems like a very well-organized, well-supported structure in Moto2. Yeah, I mean, I'm so grateful to be here. Honestly, I feel like I fit in with this team so well. It's, it's more like a close-knit family, to be honest. And uh, yeah, I really, really, really been enjoying my time with these guys so far. And uh, when I was at home for the last two races, I was really missing them. And uh, the welcoming back I got yesterday, you know, it, it really makes my heart so warm. And uh, I really feel like a, a part of this team, you know, and that uh, we all want the same end result. So, yeah, it's it's really amazing. And I mean, coming from a satellite team to a, a really, would I, how would you say it, um, top Moto2 team you know I feel like the transition's pretty much the same you know <laughs> uh, really really good team and I'm super happy to be here because that's interesting isn't it because uh, the good teams seem to have a role everybody has a role everybody has a purpose there's a high level of organization I mean that's the sort of image that comes across here anyway definitely I mean uh, everybody's doing their part and uh, you know you've just got to get on with your job yeah and everything else is taken care of which is really amazing and uh yeah, it just helps so much to be able to rock up and do your part. Is there much to be said for the nationalities involved in the team? I mean, coming into a very much a Germanic kind of structure compared to, you know, last year you were surrounded by a real mix of personalities <laughs> and characters. Is there is there much difference there? You know, to be honest, I think uh, throughout my, my time in the paddock, yeah, I've been amongst all the nationalities <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's cool because I feel like uh, obviously all the Germans, yeah, they really, I feel like they, 
they set in their ways, you know, they're straightforward and it's, it's really nice because I feel like everybody here feels like a family more than uh, just uh, a job and, and uh, yeah, I really enjoy it. And I mean, in the box, I've got uh, Italian, Spanish, Belgium working with me. So, you know, we've got quite the variety going on here and uh, it seems to be working well so far. <laughs> I mean, I know you've been missing race time and that's been a bit of a shame. I mean, but you're back on track now. When you were first trying the bike and testing it in pre-season, did you, was there a part of you that thought, you know, I kind of would like, you know, this is part of my education. I maybe missed this a little bit by jumping Moto3, Moto, MotoGP. Uh, was there a, a part of you that was um, relishing having a new kind of set of parameters for the technical side? Yeah, I definitely, the first time I rode the bike, I could definitely see things that I thought flip maybe this would have been helpful to have, have uh, ridden this bike before going to MotoGP but at the same time I feel like I learned a lot riding that MotoGP bike that helps me on the Moto2 already so uh, yeah you know it's 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 a tricky thing but uh, when I look back at it now there's no ways that I would have changed what I did I mean it was an amazing experience for me to go to MotoGP for a year and I'm just very grateful that uh, I got the opportunity to go back to Moto2 with such a good team and now have a have a go in Moto2 so yeah it, it's been good and uh, I really want to get my Moto2 program where I feel it can be and uh, and be fighting up for the podium and that because I feel like I've got everything I need and I just need to put it all together now. I mean you you come across as a quite a level-headed guy anyway but do you think that experience of MotoGP made you appreciate even more how the sport can be hard maybe in ways you don't always expect because you went from being front runner in Moto3 right into like we said the, the deep end and, and now you know people I think rightfully look at you and say look at Darren Binder and think right you know there's a guy we expect to be again challenging for GP wins yeah you know it's it's one of those things you just got to like last year was definitely tough and uh, it definitely made me you know appreciate when you when things are going well and uh, you know you've really got to enjoy those moments when things are going right and uh Make sure you never give up when they're not because uh, there's always another opportunity around the corner and as long as you keep your head down and keep going, it always seems to turn around at some point. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's so nice to come back and be able to enjoy racing a little bit more. At the end of last year, I feel like it got me down a bit at the end and uh, yeah, I'm stoked to, to finally feel like I'm finding my feet again. <laughs> Do you think there's much to figure out about Moto2? I mean, Moto3, of course, has its own particular way you have to race, and then MotoGP as well. But do you, do you think you have a taste or a flavor enough of this category yet to think, right, that's what I need to do? Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me was, you know, I, I got used to riding a bike with traction control, and coming back, I had to obviously get used to riding without it again because this bike has a lot of torque, and that first touch of the throttle is super aggressive, and... Uh, when you know you don't have that safety of traction control, at the beginning I was very, very slow on the throttle and uh, slowly, step by step, I started to figure out what I needed to go fast and uh, yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm starting to understand exactly what I need and uh, I feel like it's, it, it works well for me. I feel like I ride a bike in a good way for a Moto2 style, should I say, and uh, yeah, I don't see why I can't be uh, competitive, you know. I'm bouncing from, maybe it's a silly question, but bouncing from Dunlop to Michelin back to Dunlop, is that something that maybe people don't think about or realize that it's actually a little bit trickier to get you know, used to? Yeah, you know, obviously uh, everybody speaks about the MotoGP tires and how amazing they are, and they are so great. And a lot of the time you hear guys saying, oh, Moto2 tires are really, really difficult to understand and that. But uh, I've, I've found that I, I've 
picked it up fairly quickly. You know, I felt quite confident with the Dunlop straight away coming back. And yeah, I don't know if it's maybe because I didn't spend that much time on the Michelins or if it was maybe because I spent so much time in Moto3 on the Dunlops, but I found that the Moto2 tires didn't feel that bad to me at first. So yeah, I mean, it's definitely a difference, but uh, I feel like I've found my way pretty quickly. Are you the kind of guy that likes to study, you know, his opposition quite a lot? Uh, I mean, are you looking at the likes of Acosta, Vietti, trying to work out what they're doing differently, or do you just focus on your own gig? You know, I try and focus on my own gig, but if I do get the opportunity out on track to, to ride behind them or something, I feel like then I take it in fairly quickly. And, uh, yeah, if I get a chance to ride behind somebody, I, I really feel like I can pick up fairly easily on what they're doing different. And uh, normally I'm able to... Once I've made that step, if I've seen something, I'm able to normally keep it there quite okay. So, yeah, I'm, I try and watch back all the races and all the free practices and stuff and uh, try and see the lines and things like that, you know, and you obviously look out for those front guys and see what they're doing. But, yeah, at the same time, you know, it's one thing to see it and be told it even, but it's another thing to do it yourself. Sometimes you just got to go out there and figure it out for yourself. Because yeah, when success comes in Moto2, I think something that you maybe need to be looked at for is your adaptation because I don't think there's any other rider who's had quite the, the scale of challenge <laughs> in the last two years that you've had. Yeah, it's 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 definitely been a strange road to take, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's I'm enjoying it and and it's been good and uh, I'd never change it for anything. Listen, I, I don't want to bore you and I know you're asked a lot, but you know you live with your brother, you're good friends with your brother. Uh, what's your view on Brad? I mean, we just did a show recently on the podcast where we said. You know, could this be the year? Can we actually count Brad as a real championship contender in 2023? I mean, what's is there anything different you see in him day to day this year compared to the last couple? Honestly, I I don't see any difference in him. No difference <laughs> at all. I mean, uh, I'm definitely Not biased. Surprised. I mean, uh, I'm gunning for my brother through and through, no matter what. And I've always believed that having a, if he gets things right you know having the bike dialed in how he wants it and having a bike that's really competitive i have zero doubts that he can be fighting for a world championship i mean i look up to my brother i think he's one of the best riders in the world and uh yeah it's so good to see him this year you know finally things are working out you know and it's uh it's really cool and i mean the whole project is really this year is looking amazing so hats off to them and i hope that come the end of the year he's in amongst the fight for the championship that'll be uh that'll be something special for sure speaking <laughs> of the binder family you're a little bit closer to you know a family dynamic when it comes to the brands and the relationships you're inside kind of like the pure mobility group Husqvarna motorcycles of course uh again that that must also is that consolidation feeling there is that you know a little bit kind of you guys have closer things to talk about yeah you know it's so it's so nice to uh to be in amongst the same group, you know, because uh, we end up doing similar things. We've got the same training bikes and we, I don't know, it's nice to be under the same roof, should I say. And uh, yeah, it, it's definitely cool. I mean, we've both gone our own ways and we'll both continue to do our own things at the end of the day. But I mean, yeah, well, well, you have a nice shiny the, Monster Energy cap as yeah, well. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, we definitely are different. That There's no doubt about that. But uh yeah, to be in amongst the same kind of things is really, really special. Lastly, Darren, um, discuss. Your bike is probably the best-looking one in Moto2. <laughs> I mean, it stands out a mile. Yeah, 100%. I think we have the best bike on the grid. Uh, not only looks-wise, I think we have the best equipment as well and a super good team behind it. But, uh, yeah, I really, really like the look of the bike. Um, 
the Lumo wheels, I think uh, they definitely make it a hard life for the tire guy. He spends most of his time cleaning those beautiful shiny wheels. But uh, yeah, from outside, the bike looks amazing. Well, this may have been interrupted a little bit by a military jet <laughs> flying here over in Mugello. But thanks ever so much for your time. Um, best of luck, of course. And I uh, look forward to seeing you on the box soon in Moto2. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, I hope that uh, that happens fairly soon. <laughs> Thanks again, Husqvarna Motorcycles, for helping us with that. So, guys, we're now on to the Marquez ring. Uh, Ten left-handers, anti-clockwise, 3.7 kilometers compared to Mugello's 5.2. Uh, the biggest amount of race laps of the season. Um, Mark wasn't there in 2022, um, and we're talking about a full year since Fabio Quasararo uh, took victory there. Uh, it was possibly his last moment of um, full happiness, perhaps, with the M1. Um, Paco Bernayo, of course, Paco Bernayo was on pole. Um, and he has the lap record. So we know the Ducati and the Italian are going to be formidable and, you know, fully in contention around this particular circuit as well. Dave, um, quite importantly, Mark's level of competitiveness this weekend will say a lot for Honda's current state, you know, with the RCV, where they are, uh, potentially where they're going. I mean, he's won there, what, eight times? And the bike wasn't the best on all of those eight occasions. So he has been able to ride around problems at this particular venue. Yeah, I mean, Mark owns the Saxon ring. It's as simple as that. You know, he doesn't. He just doesn't get beaten there because it is all uh, lots and lots of long left corners, which is his speciality. Uh, what was interesting at Mugello was that Marquez was saying the um, the the Calex chassis because he he started the weekend on both with two Calex chassis. Um, the Calex chassis struggles a bit in long corners which is a problem at Mugello because it's all you know all long corners they found this at uh, Le Mans as well um they if they'll go to the Saxon ring and if it's uh, as long as it's dry on Friday which it looks like it will be um you would expect them to do a back to back with the old chassis because although the Calic chassis uh, I think it sort of you know stops and turns and is better on corner entry um, there isn't much of that at uh, uh, at the at the Saxon ring uh, so it might be worth going back to the uh, to the HRC chassis the the the, the chassis that he was you know, using at the start of the season to uh, Try and and see how that works at uh, in Germany and and regain some of his form. And to be honest, um, I like I've put I have already put Mark Marquez in my into my fantasy team because he, he you know it, it's hard to see anyone beating him. It's not about it is a circuit where you can ride around the 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 weaknesses of a of a bike as long as your bike turns i think the yamahas are going to really struggle because they're struggling with turning this year so yeah it's hard to see anyone beating him yeah i agree with that i think um you know if if someone like alex rins was uh was fit maybe he would be in the mix somewhere um you know fabio didn't have yamaha issues i think he would be in the mix but he's 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 obviously not uh, anywhere near uh, the front at the moment, um, and you know the, you know I think if Ducati can get podiums at, at the Saxon Ring, then that, that's brilliant because this used to be such a bad track for them, like so, like we're really one of the worst tracks on the calendar. This and Assen, I think, were two of the most difficult back when, you know, Davizioso was the, the the factory guy there fighting Marquez for championships. Um, also, I was expecting Mark to go in two footed on Honda after the race in uh, in Mugello because obviously we saw his um, his reaction in the gravel where he was basically just holding his arms outwards, like what 
is going on here? What do I have to do to to get a decent finish here? Um, you know, there, there was some real frustration on show um, immediately after crash. But um, but you know, obviously he had a few hours to cool off by the time we spoke to him on Sunday, and he was saying, you know, actually I was a lot closer than I thought I'd be here this weekend. Um, yes, we've got issues, but um, uh, we weren't as far away at Mugello, which has been a historically difficult track for Honda and me, um, than than we thought. So um, from that, I was I was taking that Mark was was thinking, you know what, actually, um, good track's coming up for us now. And uh, Mugello's always been tough. Like, let's let's get the head on. So, yeah, I, I go along with, that, with what Dave said. It's it's really hard to see anyone beating him. Uh, it is worth remembering what Luca Marini said about Pekka Bagnaia, about how he is uh, exceptionally good in left and long left-hand corners. So maybe Pekka can give him a bit of a run for his money. Who's uh, your prediction then, Neil? I mean, if Dave is putting all his money on Mark Marquez, uh, who do you fancy? Uh, yeah, I mean, well, Peko probably, I guess. Yeah, I mean, Jorge Martin's in great form. Um, he has mixed memories from this track, though. Um, but yeah, you would have to say one of the one of the Ducati boys. I, I'm considering his third place in 2022 and the fact that he starts so well. And I love the little wave to Pecco along the front straight. You can see from Pecco's uh, rear-facing saddle cam. Um, and, yeah, the fact that the KTM is getting closer and closer to what he actually wants. And I'm going for, I think it might be a Jack Miller day in Germany. I wouldn't put it past the Australian getting a decent result. And then, of course, Brad Binley can never really rule him out. I mean, Maverick Vinales has also been particularly good at Saxon Ring, but I'm not allowed to mention that name anymore, am I? <laughs> No. I I actually think that uh, I actually think that the uh, the Aprilia's might be a good uh, a good shout there because they can carry the corner speed. Yeah, and you think Alice qualified in the front row in twenty one and was leading the race um, for the first part. Um, so yeah, it's a decent shot. I'd also Binder. If you think back to twenty one, it was it was a KTM that pushed Mark hardest when he last won at the Saxon Ring. Miguel Oliveira had one of his best rides, I think, in MotoGP on that particular day. And uh, Binder, on his first visit to the Saxon Ring on a MotoGP bike, finished fourth or something, and he he came from way back. So KTM's might not be a bad shot either, actually. Uh, two critical Saxon ring questions for you both. Dave, are you riding your motorcycle to this Grand Prix as per usual? And will you remember to take off the front wheel brake lock uh, in the paddock or will we have to come and help you pick up the GS at some point in the evening? Uh, I'm sure I'll find. I mean, uh, I now have a little one of those memory thingies hanging off of the front of my uh, disc lock. So uh, I will remember to take it off, but I am completely sure that I'll find a different way to fall off of my motorbike. Um, uh, and as for am I traveling there by a motorbike, you know, as um, uh, does the Pope defecate in the woods? <laughs> Neil, um, importantly, is it Bratwurst Frankfurt or a four-litre Krug of beer? Uh, it's a, a, probably a, a bowl of pho um, because we're staying in Chemnitz and last year, Ad, we found a, a pretty banging Vietnamese restaurant um, in the city centre, which I think uh, surpassed all the, the German um, sustenance that we had encountered up until then. So um, I'm definitely down for hitting there on Thursday night. You will be uh, avo- avoiding the German sausage. Yes, just to round up our little kind of preview of Saxon Ring then, let's just go through one particular memory we have each from that race. And for me, it was maybe going there for the first time. And oh, my memory's so poor. I can't remember which year it was, but walking down through, you know, turn 11, going down into the waterfall and that kind of double left coming back up the hill, you can get incredibly close to MotoGP bikes there. It's a fantastic spot to watch from again. I think I even took a picture of like Valentino Rossi with my mobile phone, took it back to the press room and, you know, it was amazed at how 
you know how well it looked because you're that close you know you can really they're not going particularly fast there's quite a it's a bit of a hot spot for crashes as well down there at the bottom of the hill but uh yeah it was um you know one of those moments where you think right okay i'm going for walking i'm going for a walk around the track uh you know it's it's a fantastically weird venue saxon ring i mean you have fast spaces you have very compact and um unusual spots where the track almost like touches itself on the way back it's it's, it's quite strange but um yeah get, I, getting up close i think that's my my kind of main memory dave uh yeah speaking of getting up close yeah i mean like i remember uh when uh, Jorge Lorenzo got onto the Ducati and went down to the third to the final corner and standing in there trying to watch him use the thumb brake you know you are literally close enough to uh, close enough to do that um, uh, my favorite memory is slightly cruel as you might expect from me um, it was uh, before they paved the uh, massive field where they put the car park uh, there'd been the weather at the Saxonry is 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 always very very weird uh, it can be really hot um it can be very humid it can absolutely chuck it down with rain i think there'd been an absolute downpour the uh i, I can't remember if it was the saturday or the sunday um there'd been an absolute downpour the 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 field where everyone was parking their cars uh, was absolutely sodden i was there on my motorbike so i sort of walked away and rode away very feeling very smug about myself uh, and then came in the next day and heard about uh, all of the uh, horror tales of people having of, of them having to uh, find tractors to to tow people out of the car park because they were so mired in mud. Um, it's a it, it's a very sort of Saxon ring sort of uh, thing to happen. Since then, you know they they've put a lot of gravel down. It's much easier. No one no one gets stuck there anymore. So um, it's a yeah, just one of those things. Because very amusing. Evil man, Dave. You're an evil man. I, I am. Mean- my, uh, I mean, my favorite memory from the Saxon Ring wasn't actually when I was there, but um, just a, a great race from the past. I remember, I think it was Rossi and Gibbonal were fighting in 2003 and they were together the whole race. And it was clear that Rossi probably had the, the speed to, to win uh, and win quite comfortably, but instead was trying to make a bit of a race off it and was letting Sete lead and then was kind of following him and then going back to the front and making a nice show for it. And it seemed as though he had timed his uh, his victory march to perfection. Um, but then he bollocked up the, the breaking for the final turn, ran wide and uh, Sete just got the run out to the line. And I think I remember hearing that even Jerry Burgess, who was Rossi's crew chief at the time, was like... Don't think that was the cleverest strategy that he did there. <laughs> um, yeah, but that was sort of Rossi seemed un, un, untouchable at that time, and uh, the fact that someone was actually able to, to pip him to the post to make him look a bit stupid—that um, was quite a remarkable thing. Um, Neil, I'm going to need to pick your memory because uh, because it is such a short track. You get sort of these weird. You you can sometimes have very close. Uh, quite close results and wasn't there like a dead heat at saxon ring one year and they had to separate the the two riders by either it might be it was either one two fives or two fifty so it was going back quite a long time yes. they ended up having to separate the two riders by going back to see who'd set the uh who'd set the fastest lap yeah wasn't it in was it 2000 was it the model three race in or maybe it was the more the one two five race I think it was. I think it was two structure. It would have been. It was definitely like you know, two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, uh, two thousand and ten, maybe that sort of. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that sort of period. It was a long time ago. Yeah. I, I sorry to put you on the spot, but um, yeah, it is. It, it it's that kind of a track. I mean, there ha- and there've been just some fantastic. I think it was two thousand and six that we saw an absolutely banging race with five people crossing the line. Where within four. 
uh, you know, four people crossing the line within sort of a second or may, or, or whatever. Uh, uh, I think was it Rossi beat Lorenzo by 0.99 seconds. Uh, or it was Melandri that day. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, but it was it was just a really. Um, a, it, it, we have seen some fine racing there. What about the uh, the year? It might have been the first flag to flag where you yes. know, we had like ten riders at the exit of pit lane. That was yeah, um, it was you know. it was more than it was more than ten. It was something like about it was twelve or fifteen. So it was so bad that they had to change the rules the you know, the next time because it was just an absolute sprint, and it looked like you know like nobody thought that that we were all going to be able to come out of there in one piece they ended up being sort of you know you you will be uh, leaving pit lane in order um that was when stefan bradle led at first because they stefan bradle sort of got his front forks fixed um it was it was wet the, the track was wet but it was obviously drying and he got his front forks uh, sorted and uh, and a and a dry setup for his front forks but they were trying to change the shock and they didn't have time uh, so they had to put his wet uh, shocker, which was, you know, much, much softer um, and got away, led the race and then was just uh, uh, the track dried out and dried out and he ended up getting gobbled up. 2011 was the dead heat in 125s and it was, we were speaking about Dennis Andre earlier, Johan Zarco that lost out on that particular occasion to Hector Fabel. So, yeah, that's good. That's a good shot, Div. Thank you. My memory isn't as fading as badly as I thought it was. Well, that's it this week. Don't forget to check our Patreon channel for loads of content, especially the Paddock Notes shows that we record every afternoon of every day of a Grand Prix. Uh, We share our thoughts, opinions, riders' words, and some audio we managed to grab from other figures around the pit boxes. Uh, There's a free trial period open at the moment, so sign up, enjoy it, let us know what you think. Also, send us any questions or comments through Twitter at the usual place, Paddock Pass Pod, or through Patreon. And don't forget that the show can also be seen now on YouTube. Uh, We'll be back with our first notes recording on Thursday from the Fatherland.